You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Uh, Luke, did I say Luke 18? Go, go to Luke 18. My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. And we are today, we're finishing our... Um, a parable series. So we've been looking at Jesus's stories and uh, the stories he's been telling in parables about, hey, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And so he's been giving us these several parables. We've been looking at them over and over. This is the 11th week. Next week, we start a new series. And uh, it's a, in leading up to Christmas, it's an Advent series. And I was going to tell the first hour what it is, but I'm, I've decided I didn't, and I'm not going to tell you either. But you should show up because it's different than anything we've ever done, and I'm super excited about it, okay? So if it just there next week, show up, bring your family, happy Thanksgiving, all that. All right, so Luke chapter 18, we are looking at a very familiar parable. It's the Pharisee and the tax collector where Jesus tells the story about two men that go up to the temple and pray. One's a Pharisee, one's a tax collector. You know that you've probably heard the story if you've been in church more than three or eight times, okay? And so... But the story is very much like um, the a parable that we looked at last week. It's a, it's a parable about prayer, but it's actually about more than prayer. So, so the parable last week was about prayer, but we found out, and, and he tells a story about, you know, that, but nobody's really praying, but it, it's about prayer, but it's about more than prayer. It's about those who are faithful and the, and the prayer of faith. What does it look like to be faithful and to pray to God? That was last week. This week, Jesus, right along in the very next parable, is a, is a parable about prayer as well. But we're going to find out it's actually, this one's also about more than just prayer. It's also about faith. And so I'm going to read it beginning in, in verse 9 of Luke 18. And I'm going to pray and then we'll walk through these verses. So here, here's how uh, Luke records it. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So two men went up to the, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you would, let's, let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us this morning to hear your word. I pray that the words of my mouth would be true to your word. Father, I pray your word would not return void in our hearts and minds. Draw us to your son, Jesus, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. So here's the parable. He tells us right off the bat that he also told this parable, which connects it to the parable before. And then it says that he told them to a certain people. He, he told them, he told this parable to some who 
trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and, and, and second part, treated others with contempt. It's, it's aimed at some people. And I know right here is, is we, when we ever hear a parable aimed at us, two thoughts go through our mind. One, it, is it me? And then secondly, we work really hard to rationalize, oh, no, of course it's not me, it couldn't be me, right? So there are two parts of it, and it's important we get clear these two parts. It's a two-part indictment. The first indictment is self-righteousness. The second indictment is contempt for others. Now, what I want to do is I want to take a second, and I want to talk about what a few of these terms mean, and I want to do a little biblical theology on the front end of some things you already know, but to make sure we have a context so that when we hear this parable, we, we can understand what it is that Jesus is aiming at. So the first bit of it is righteousness. What does righteousness mean? And righteousness means simply that uh, in this context of the New Testament and in the Old Testament, that righteousness is um, meeting God's standard. It is, it is meeting all that God demands. Everything that God demands, it's meeting that demand. It means meeting the requirements of God's law. So, so you might think about it as this. It's, it's being approved. It's being accepted. It's, it's, uh, it's passing the examination. If your life was under an examination, you passed the examination. You, you met the standards of God. And the issue, though, for us when we think about being approved, being accepted, is whose examination? Who, whose approval and acceptance are we seeking? This idea of treating others with contempt, with disdain, with, with scorn, um, condescending attitude, looking down on others. Pretty sure we know their whole story. You know, that's what he means. So, as we think about this, let's get some things in our mind. If, meeting, if righteousness is meeting God's standard, being approved by God, accepted by Him because we've met His standard... Let's think about, okay, the Pharisees come and they ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And in, and in Matthew chapter 22, he answers them this way. He says, so here's the greatest commandment. I, I tell you, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. So in other words, Jesus says, hey, listen, you want to know what the law of God is? You want to know what the righteous standard is? It's loving God and loving others and doing that perfectly. In fact, it sums up the whole Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is thought of typically as, there, you know, we know there were two tablets. And how it was is that on the first tablet, you had all the things related to your relationship of loving God. So you had... You know, don't, don't have any other gods, um, no, make no graven images, you won't take the Lord's name in vain, you remember the Sabbath, you, you honor your parents, because by doing that, you're, you're honoring God. So that was this tablet one. And then tablet two, so this is love God, and then this is, this is the love others. This is how we relate to it, so we don't, we don't murder, we don't commit adultery. It's hard to, you know, you, murdering somebody isn't loving them. Um, all right, so some, you might need to write that down. All right, so you, you don't murder, you don't commit adultery, you don't steal, you don't lie, you don't covet. You, so tablet one, tablet two, Jesus sums it all up 
in that. And then Romans seven twelve, as we're talking about the law, Paul says about the law, look, it's holy, it's righteous, it's it's good, it's spiritual. The law is a good, the law is a good thing. I mean, it's from God. And we find out the bar is very high for the law. James will tell us in James chapter 2, he says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. It's, it the law is all or nothing. God's standard is all or nothing to be accepted and approved and to pass the examination. Now, but here's the thing. So that's what's required of us. And at the same time, the law, while it's good and righteous and holy, it can't save you. The, the law can do nothing to save you. It's, it's a mirror. We remember, we looked at this in the Galatians series. The law is a mirror, and you look into the mirror to see who God is, and, and then to, it reflects back who you are, and you know because of the law what's good and what's evil. And, and so the law is a mirror to reveal yourself as you see God clearly. And, and we see that the law can't save us, so God has to save us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we're saved by grace through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And then we find out in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God, the, the approval, the acceptance of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody has. And all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. A, an atonement, a, a mercy, an offer, an offering of mercy by his blood to be received by faith. So that's why Paul will say, we are not saved by works, we are saved by faith. Justification by faith apart from works of the law. That you, you might be sitting here saying, God, that's really great. I'm so glad we had this review, Ross, of biblical theology, but I already know all of that. I mean, we, we, we talk, if you've been here with this, we talk about this all the time. But, but let me also say, that's, we haven't said everything there is to say about faith when we say that. Because faith, we find, so faith is trusting God, it's believing God, it's putting your life in God's hands, and then it is living out that believing of God. It's living it out. So Paul says we're justified, made, made righteous, acceptable, approved, but by faith, apart from works. But James, James will say to us, he'll say, hey, listen, faith apart from works is dead. Faith apart from works is useless. The, a person is justified by works and not faith alone. So, this is a different, little bit different conversation, but we have to hear that. 
So good works matter. Let's just boil it down to that. Good works matter. I mean, a good tree bears good fruit, Jesus says. A bad tree bears bad fruit. So what kind of tree are you? What does your fruit look like? This is a legitimate question. We've got to ask and answer the question. So, So what are the good works? I'd argue in many cases it's the fulfilling of the law. So with that in mind, let's now hear Jesus' parable and hear what he has to say about all of this. So in verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Maybe yours says publican. Okay? Now, Here's the two men. They go up to the temple and pray. It's the place that you go and pray. There was communal prayer twice a day at the temple and then private prayer any other time. And so this would have been a very familiar place, an expected place to find a Pharisee. I mean, uh, Pharisees, they they were pious. They looked pious. They really were. Their their lives were good. So sometimes we see Pharisee and we think, oh, hypocrite. No, no, I don't want you to think. You'd look at a Pharisee and you would say, man, okay, son, I... I want you to grow up and be like that. I mean, that's a good person. Legitimately. And the tax collector, I mean, nobody, nobody dreamed of their child growing up and being a tax collector, okay? I mean, tax collectors, they were scorned by their fellow Jews because here's what they did. They 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 worked for the enemy. They worked for Rome, and they exacted taxes from their own people. But more... They exploited it. They took advantage of it. They were getting rich off of their brothers and their sisters and their cousins and their neighbors. I mean, they were living in, according to you know, the law and how you were supposed to, they were living in open sin. That What they were doing was evil. They weren't serving God. They, they weren't serving man. They were serving themselves. That's a tax collector. A publican. Puh what you're supposed to do. Now, that we've got those two settled, let's get into what Jesus says about it. The Pharisee, verse 11, standing by himself, which means he was probably as close in the temple as he could be. So there's the Holy of Holies, you can't go in there. But then there's this inner court. He's probably right up there next to it praying. We um, be like the front row of the church. We don't have any Pharisees here today. Langemeyer, you let me down. Usually, all right, I, was, I had it all planned out to Pharisee you. But anyways, all right, so, so standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men. Extortioner, I'm not, I'm not unjust, or adulterers. I'm, I'm, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. Notice the prayer. You you know what he's talking about? Honestly, a a beautiful life. These are beautiful works. Beautiful works. 
I mean, in the, in the first place, he, he, he starts right. He thanks God, and, and he says he fasts twice a week. He really he only had to fast twice a year, and is, you know, if you're really religious, you maybe once a week or once a month. This guy, twice a week he fasts, over and above any expectation. And he, and he, all this to honor God. He gives a tenth of his good, of all his goods. He he, um, he hasn't committed adultery. He's never done any violence or, or robbed anybody of anything. I mean, he's conducted himself in an exemplary manner. I mean, it's a it's a beautiful life. I mean, honestly, and in, we should be in wonder. We surprised by it. I mean, truly, in the eyes of the world, who can find fault with a guy like that? I mean, the membership interviews you just fly through it, and you get straight from you know visiting to the discovered the temple to the to the membership, and then we make him an elder. I mean, we like people like that. And to be sure, he likes himself too. Notice two things about the content of the prayer. So when you start a prayer, it says, I thank you, Lord, that. There's an expectation of what will follow. So, so if I wrote you, you know, like a thank you note, you know, if you write a thank you note, you know, thank you for the, the meal you provided or the, you know, the... the um, Football tickets to the Cowboy game. I'm ready to write that thank you note. Um, or, or something. I mean, you, you, you write it and you say, I thank you for what it is that you did, right? I mean, it's not what he does. I thank you, Lord. And actually, that's the last mention of God. I thank you, God. And, and then he goes to reference everything about himself. So try this at Thanksgiving. If you do have a family tradition at Thanksgiving, you go around, I'm thankful for the So when it comes to you, you say, you know what, I'm just so thankful I'm not like all y'all. <laughs> I mean, I'm just thankful. I just wanted to take a moment at this Thanksgiving meal before it gets cold. Talk about how thankful I am that I'm such a great guy. See how that goes over at your family? You know, I mean... That's what the guy's doing. And Jesus is, you know what he's doing? He's not worshiping God. You know who he's worshiping? He's worshiping himself. I mean, he wouldn't say that he was, but that's what he's doing. I mean, this isn't God-centered. It's absolutely self-centered. I mean, literally, the text says he prayed about himself. Maybe it means he prayed to himself. Secondly, notice, he cannot Bear being in the presence of God without blaming and condemning another person. Oh, be so careful of this. He addresses God in prayer. But what he's really doing is talking to himself and reviewing his own self-righteousness. He told God what a superior person he was using the behavior of someone else as his standard. We're, listen, hear that. Let me let you off the hook. If you're wondering, 
I don't wonder if I'm guilty of this. Yes, you are. He takes pride in his supposed superior status. And he sees the works that he's doing as that which separates him from all the others. So, he asks nothing of God in the prayer, which means he he doesn't need God. He's self-sufficient. And he is totally blind and ignorant of himself. Augustine said it. He said, it is not enough for them not to petition God, not only not ask anything of God, you've got to praise yourself. And then on top of that, he completes all this wickedness by not only praising himself, but by belittling and accusing the one who is praying and accusing himself. The weight of that we should feel for a second, because it's in our hearts, by the way. So then he says in verse 13, but the tax collector, but the tax collector, the sorry, no good tax collector, nobody wanted to see him on the temple, murmurs, everybody remembering what it is he did to him. Standing far off, which means he's probably, as a Jew, he's in the court of the Gentiles as far away as he can be. And he won't even lift his eyes up to heaven. And he beats his breast. Listen, no self-respecting man in the first century beat his breast. That's what women did. He's in anguish here. We don't know what brought him up to the temple mount. They didn't use, tax collectors don't usually go up there. We don't know what brought him up there. But he's there. And he's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But you know, it actually doesn't say that. If you have the New American Standard, they've, translated the Greek, right? It's a little more wooden and it's harder to make sense of. But really what he's saying is not a sinner. He's saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. There's a direct article right in front of that word. Not just a sinner, not just any old sinner, but the sinner, the the sinner. Which means he's not comparing himself to anybody else. His standard is not anybody else. His standard is God. He knows as he comes before God, I have mercy on me, the sinner. When he uses the word merciful, that word used that way is only used two times in the New Testament. The, The typical word, for mercy is a different word. Like you, you hear it like the end of Mark chapter 10 and Jesus coming in to uh, Jericho and there's the blind man, you know, and he says, uh, son of David, have mercy on me. That, that's not this word. That's the typical word for mercy. This is a different word for mercy. And it's only used two times. And the, and the word, it's, it's a, literally the word is hilestron and it means to atone 
for my sin. In the temple, which is where they were, there was the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, you find out in the Old Testament, it's where the, um, it's, it was the place of, of where God was, where the Shekinah glory was. And it was over the Ark of the, of the Covenant. And um, inside the Ark of the Covenant was the law of God. The two tablets broken. You know, the first two tablets broken, and he goes back up. But the, the broken ones were in there. The law was in there in the Ark of the Covenant. In other words, you couldn't come near the presence of God without being scrutinized by the law. Who in the world can come into the presence of God and withstand the scrutiny of God's holy, perfect standard? And the answer is nobody. And so, on top of the Ark of the Covenant was what is called a mercy seat. The Helestron. It's the very same word the tax collector is using here. And on the mercy seat, once a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the, the, the high priest could, could go into the Holy of Holies and, and speak to God. And he could because what he did is they, they slaughtered an animal, they spilt the blood of an animal as a sacrifice for sin. And they took the blood and they poured the blood on the mercy seat. And so the, the blood atoned for the sin of the priest that was going in there. The blood made, made atonement. It, it, it made sacrifice. It, it was the propitiation is the word. Which means it, it bore the sin of the individual and became the object of God's wrath so that the person didn't have to be. But they'd have to do it every year. Sacrifices were made all the time. You could never come into the presence of God without sacrifices being made. Here is what the tax collector is saying. He's, saying, he's not saying, listen, God, I, look, I've done some bad stuff and I'm up here because I've gotten myself in a bind. And so I've come up here to the Temple Mount to pray, to say, look, I'm never going to do any of that stuff again. I mean, if you just look, if you if you could just let me off here, let's blank slate the deal, and then the rest of my life, I'm gonna live good. I'm gonna live like that Pharisee. He's not saying, hey, God, would you look, will you just let me off this one time? Look, I know that I had bad parents and I, I went to public school. I mean, I would you just let me off here? He's not asking God to overlook his sins because that doesn't help, that doesn't solve the problem of his righteousness. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, God, I need atonement for my sin. Have mercy on me, the sinner. I need Spilt blood, mercy, atonement for my sin. For me, the sinner. And where does it come from? 
Well, the rest of the New Testament will tell us it comes from Jesus, who in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin, Jesus, was made to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. I am the sinner. I need atonement. Jesus steps in. He goes, okay, now I'm the sinner. Everything you deserve, I take onto myself. And now I cover you. I clothe you in mercy with righteousness. That's what he's asking. See, here are how believers deal with the problem of righteousness, of, of being approved, of being accepted by God. It's knowing that Jesus loved you so much to make atonement, to be atonement, to be the mercy for you. And because of that, He can accept you and love you and approve you. All that He is gets covered over on you. He died once, the Bible One time He dies. It's a sacrifice to satisfy all sins because He's the perfect sacrifice. He died once for your sins. All the sins you've ever done, the sin that you're doing right now, all the sin you will ever do. And now you're accepted in Him. You're utterly approved in Him. You, you, you are made righteous because of Him. He loved you enough to be the atonement for you and now can approve you. And you don't have to wait to the end of your life. You don't have to live your whole life going, oh, I wonder if I did enough stuff. I wonder if, I'm, if, I'm if I pleased God enough. I wonder if I... If I, I mean, good, good trees bear good fruit. Did I, did I have enough good fruit? I mean, bad trees bear bad fruit. What about... Jesus has done it all. He's the atonement. He's the mercy. Have Mercy on me. And this man is liberated. He's set free. Now, listen to Jesus' conclusion to the parable. I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified, which is the same word for righteousness. He went down Approved, accepted, rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, what does this mean for us? Because I want to ask an answer quickly. What are the good works of this man's faith? And what about the good works of the Pharisee? I mean, if faith without works is dead, and James explains, and he's right, James, it's an inspired word of God. Works matter. 
But what about all these works of the Pharisees? And what's the difference? And who's the good tree? And who's the bad tree? And how can we tell? So let's, let's say it this way. Let's walk through it. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. So that helps us one right there. Secondly, the Pharisee comes and praises himself that he is righteous, that he's accepted. He comes, I, I'm, I know I'm accepted because of all that I've done, but yet it is a poisonous wicked heart that comes to praise the glory of himself on account of his pretended good works. On top of that, he's so full of hatred for his neighbor that if, if God had allowed him to be the judge, he would, have, he would have plunged that poor tax collector into the deepest part of hell. Because his life was utterly sinful. And thank God I'm not like him. But it's hard to see. Because this man's life is so beautifully decorated and clothed with external conduct. Nobody can say anything different about it. I mean, really, we can't. It's exemplary. But here's how we know. Here's how we know the tree from its fruits. We view it with a heart of spiritual eyes. And we recognize that what this man is doing is blasphemy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, mind. No, he's loving himself. And love your neighbor as yourself. No, he's despising his neighbor. And all these good works, listen, they're not bad in and of themselves. They're not evil in and of themselves. They're actually good works, but they flow from a heart that's rooted in evil. And so it doesn't matter how much good he does. He has a heart. He's a bad tree and everything that comes out, whether it looks good or not, is bad fruit. And Jesus sets this before us so that we would we would take notice. What are we depending on? Our own righteousness? And then we examine the heart of the tax collector and we find that he believes. And because he believes, it is not his sin counted against him, but what happens is this prayer, this, this coming and publicly saying, I'm the sinner, without regard to what anybody else around him thinks, seeking mercy from God, we look and we go, oh, that's good works. Because he becomes an example for us. We look upon his life and we go, oh, that's what it means to humble yourself. That's what it means to praise God. But the other guy, we look at that. He's all puffed up. He's proud of heart. He's entrapped in all of his sins. His soul's condemned. He's caught in the clutches of, of pride and self-deception. And if we follow him, we'll make a ruin of our life. we imitate the tax collector? That's a good tree. 
That's a good fruit. See, we look at all of the sin. What God looks at it is heart. A heart that knows he has no chance to meet the standard of God without God's mercy. The work of the tax collectors, praise of God, it benefits the whole world because he teaches us to know and to and he shows us the way that God is our Savior. And it's good because it praises God and it's good for our neighbors. On the other hand, the tax collector, I mean the, the Pharisee is struts his external righteousness in a way that blasphemes God and tears down his neighbor. Should have looked at the tax collector and said, but for the grace of God, that's where I am. And I pray for that guy who seems to be up here fighting for his faith and fighting for his soul. God, be merciful to him. That should have been his prayer. Now, I'm out of time, but I do want to illustrate this from one thing, just so we're clear what it means. And I use this illustration periodically. I will use it again. If you think, well, I already heard that, great. I hope you hear it again. Matthew chapter 7, the end of it, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus says. He says, not everybody that calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But... The one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. That's who goes into the kingdom of it. So, okay, what's the will of the Father? Must be good works, right? Then he goes on. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Listen, prophesying in God, in, in Jesus' name, sounds like a good thing. Or, and, and didn't we cast out demons in your name? I'd have to think, casting out demons in Jesus' name, that's a good thing, Right? I mean, if you can. And? And we did mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wait a minute, what does it mean then to do the will of the Father? It's not to do all these things in Jesus' name. And then he says, look, every one of them who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. What are the words? It's got to be more than just good things, right? We're left thinking, what are we supposed to do then? Good tree bears good fruit. Bad tree bears bad fruit. Jesus helps us to know how to read this. Matthew helps us to know by the inspiration of God because the very next words are Jesus comes off the mountain and he encounters a leper. A guy who's unclean. A guy who knows about himself. Everything the tax collector knew about himself. I'm unclean. And he says, Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately he was cleansed. You know what it means to be a good tree? You know what it means 
to by faith trust God for His provision of mercy. It means to believe that God, through His Son Jesus, has done everything you need to meet the standard to be approved. And then to live your life that way. Humbly. In a, in a position of the mercy of God shining on you in everything you do. And you want your life to be abundantly full of good works as you love God and love others. You're not comparing yourself to anyone. You, you know you sit under and only the standard of God. And you know that but for His mercy, you have no hope. Listen, that is liberating. Where are you this morning? You a good tree? You a bad tree? What are you counting on when you close your eyes and pray to the God who has invited you into his very presence?